Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about Chapter 11 of The Mandalorian, The Heiress, which is written by Jon Favreau and directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. And you guys, I freaking love this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. It was so good. Ugh. I was so thrilled that Bryce is back, first off. Her episode Sanctuary was this interesting middle point in in season one. And I think that this episode is not very similar to the, that one, I think. This episode, for me, is, like, very action-packed. Not that Sanctuary wasn't action-packed. It was. It was just a... It was a slow-down episode for me. This one is... No, this is the beginning of something, you know? And even though I do feel like the colors that were used in Sanctuary are pretty much similar to the colors that are used in the Eris, which I think is interesting. Like, we're exploring watery planets and greens and blues, and it's it's just, it's fun. I, I'm so happy. This episode was so great, man. Yeah, I need to, you know, when I interview Bryce Dallas Howard, I want to ask her what her favorite color is. Is it blue? (laughs) (laughs) And she's going to say yes. She's going to say yes. I'm going to say, you know what? I gathered that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I loved this episode. I know Sanctuary was something that, like, had to grow on me over time. And now I really love that episode, Sanctuary. But uh, this episode, I think, is probably one of my favorites of the entire series so far. That's high praise. Yeah, I really loved this episode immediately. I thought it had all the hallmarks of what makes The Mandalorian great. It had this begin and ending point to the episode, a little bit of intrigue. Uh, well, if you're in, if you're at Sky Talk, there's a lot of intrigue. <laughs> it had good action. It had cute, like levity and funny moments with the child, with Baby Yoda. I just, I really think this episode had it all. And to be able to see a new place that was not a desert <laughs> was great. And I had a really great time with it. I, I like, even aside from, I know, like, we're all here to talk about Ahsoka and Bo-Katan, and we will be talking about Bo-Katan, but just the aesthetic of the episode was so great. And I think that's what made Sanctuary such a great episode, too, is that Sorghum was this really realized setting and it because it was such a departure from the rest of the series it stood out so much and the details in that episode were really highlighted I think in Sanctuary and I think that it's the same here Uh, I can't remember the name of the planet that we're on in this episode Trask Uh, but I love Trask I love (laughs) the Mon Calamari and Cable Knit sweaters I love the scarves I love the puffer vests it's it's New England. It's nautical. It's galactic. <laughs> it's Pirates of the Caribbean. It's all good things. <laughs> it really is. I I really loved it too. I think there's something that's really great about Bryce in the fact that I I really believe that she takes each moment that she directs and thinks about what every character's emotions should convey in every frame mm-hmm. and. Uh, we were. I was just on um, Talking Bay ninety four's live stream that uh, he does every every Friday, and uh, they were talking about. They paused a moment where the Mandalorian gets out of the water and is just there with the child, and he's breathing hard. He's like catching his breath, and uh, you know they were commenting, "Oh, this is the first time that we've ever seen him catch his breath." 
And I really do believe that a moment like that, a moment of quiet, a moment of emotion, a moment where basically nothing is said is a hallmark of a woman director. Because with with Bryce, something I think that is so great about her is I really do, for me, she strikes me as someone who's a very empathetic person, a very uh, emotion-driven person from her interviews on the Disney gallery behind the scenes and everything. And I think that she takes these moments to be like, okay, from this point of view, this is what this character is experiencing. And he's exhausted. We need to really zero in on this moment of exhaustion. And in Sanctuary, there was those quiet moments too of here's this moment where the Mandalorian takes off his helmet and eats. Or here's this moment where he really, even behind the mask, you can feel all this emotion. There's just a lot to me that Bryce is able to get out of the actors that really conveys a sense of place and a sense of time and a sense of what we're supposed to be feeling towards these characters and all their different uh, commitments and priorities that other directors I haven't really seen. I guess with Deborah Chow and everything, but I really, really notice it with her episodes. I, I feel like they're very emotion driven. Yeah, I completely agree. There's just these smaller moments that I don't know if it's just the way they're shot or the moments that they're placed in sequence in Bryce's episodes, but there does just seem to be this almost like more human aspect to her episodes, or rather it's emphasized a lot more, I think. And I think we can even compare it with Deborah's episodes too, which I think had great moments of pause, even though Deborah herself has said that she loves the action. That's her favorite mm-hmm. thing to do. But I'm thinking of In the Sin, you know, that great shot where it's Din and Baby Yoda laying on the transport and you see Din like deciding that he's going to risk it all <laughs> for right. the child. And that's a really great moment. But I think that Bryce's episodes certainly have that. And it's not just reserved for Baby Yoda or for the Mandalorian. We see that with our frog family. <laughs> My God. <laughs> the, frog <family. laughs> the frog family. And the, the thing that was great about this episode, too, is just these um, – there were just these shots that were so – I don't know what the right word is, but I'm thinking of Sasha Banks's character when they're in the restaurant and she's got the tentacle that she's like <laughs> slurping down her face. And it's so cool. <laughs> and we really kind of linger on this shot of her eating this tentacle. And then, you know, then, of course, at the end of the episode, we see Baby Yoda do the same thing in the ship. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's just I I love moments like that. And I think that Bryce did. I think she knocked it out of the park with this episode. It was fantastic. Me too. I, I don't know if it was one of my favorites. I think it. I'll come back to that question at the end of the season. But I really did feel a lot of joy in this episode. And I have to say, I think of all of the episodes so far, this one has inspired me the most to feel like a lot of joy and want to dive even deeper in the Mandalorian I think there's a lot of nuggets in this episode which we'll get to that just really made my brain spin and like flip me on my head and made me think about all everything that I know about Star Wars and <laughs> like the past you know 10 years of watching the Clone Wars and Rebels and everything and how all those are compounded and what story are we even telling and there's just so much here in this episode I feel like that I was like the the theory train just really took off that <laughs> and that felt really good. Yeah, just a few nuggets in this yeah. episode. <laughs> One or two. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think this episode kind of gave me the feeling of when we watched how oh, I'm going to forget the name of it. Uh the second episode of the Siege of Mandalore arc when, you know, Maul is talking to Ahsoka and tells her everything that is going to happen. And you and I just had our freaking minds blown. Yeah. <laughs> could not contain, you know, all of the neurons firing of, <laughs> you know, here's your test. Are you, have you been watching all of these shows for the past 10 years? Prove it. <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> and I think that this episode was just to a, a bit of a smaller degree than that, but it was still so fun. And I know that we'll be talking, you know, I just, I got to say it, look to the animation department for the future of Star Wars. <laughs> if you're not already looking there, you got to look there. You got to look there. <laughs> yeah. Get your glasses, your binoculars, your magnifying glasses, and just take a peek. <laughs> you have to. Yeah. Because that's that's where the Mandalorian is going. That's what's happening with the plot of the Mandalorian. I've seen some people even online refer to the Mandalorian as live action Clone Wars and it's pretty similar. It kind of feels like that. It feels pretty similar in this regard. I think last episode we talked about how it these episodes do feel like animated series animated star wars episodes in terms of pacing and what we're being told and how we're it like whets our appetite for later all these different pieces feel very star wars animated even mm. though they're not it's live action and you know i think that because we've been fans for that of that for so long we're kind of primed for this but not just primed as star wars fans who have watched a lot of animation but also primed as Star Wars fans who were really super interested in the characters that they're going to be bringing into The Mandalorian too. So it's 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 great for us. It feels really good. Just a little interested yeah. in characters that they are talking about. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> do you want to do a little episode summary like we did last time, Caitlin? Yeah, sure. So a little episode summary is that we get to the planet of Trask. There is a frog family reunion, which is only topped by the end of the episode with Frogman and Frog Lady and their frog baby oh all together God. at the kitchen table. So that was adorable. It's the cutest thing that ever happened. So then Din gets to the restaurant. He meets a man who tells him where, to, well, sends him to a ship uh, where his brother is there. This is when we have the Mama Corps. I think is what this creature is called that lives in the sea. And <laughs> again with the mama. Okay. The the mother egg yeah. imagery. It just never ends here. Oh, and honestly, really? tentacles too, because let's be honest, every Star Wars story has tentacles in it too. Oh and God. it's just, it's weird at this point. Um, it's very strange. <laughs> and this episode had, you know, more tentacles per capita than... Maybe any other episode that we've seen. Anyway, so what Baby Yoda thinks is a science experiment really turns into breakfast of him. And Bo-Katan and the other Night Owl show up. Din has a rude awakening about other Mandalorians. They're offered a deal. Din leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Then he drops off Baby Yoda with the frogs to babysit them. Din and Bo and the other Night Owls attack the Imperial, Imperial ship. 
where the whole, I think, last 10 minutes of the episode is them just progressively getting closer and closer to the bridge. We hear about Bo-Katan looking for the dark saber. We see a glimpse of Moff Gideon, which very excited about that because I love Moff Gideon and I've decided that he's going to be my character this season. So, <laughs> okay, congratulations and, on that decision. Thank you. I decided it earlier this year. I've kind of been dropping hints that he's my character, but <laughs> you know. Anyway, so I was excited to see him. And then at the end of it is when Bo-Katan tells Din, she says, "Take the foundling to the city of Kaladin on the forest planet of Corvus. There you will find Ahsoka Tano. Tell her you are sent by Bo-Katan, and thank you. Your bravery will not be forgotten. This is the way." Din goes back to collect Baby Yoda, who has made a frog friend, and they leave on a ship put together with, you know, gum and fishing line, and they're <laughs> looking for Ahsoka. I guess. Like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what they're doing. <laughs> I just honestly can't believe Bo-Katan is in this episode. It's so cool. It's just so great. I mean, the last time this is the this is the year of Bo-Katan. Katie Sackoff is having a great year a for great Star Wars, right here, yeah, because she's a big part of the Siege of Mandalore. Her friendship and alliance, I suppose, with Ahsoka is so interesting in the Clone Wars. And here we have that kind of coming full circle with Bo-Katan years later, leading the Mandalorian to Ahsoka, and the the the. There's so many interesting things to unpack here, and we will, but one off the top of my head is Ahsoka's not a Jedi, so this is all very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Unless she is by this point. Maybe she went back to it. I don't know. Are, are we gonna start are we gonna start with Ahsoka with this episode? I don't know. I don't I don't think we can. I think we gotta back up. <laughs> okay. So I wanna talk about first things first. I wanna talk about the chowder tube because <laughs> Thanks for chowder. <laughs> so I love food. I work in food media. I am um, thrown off by the chowder tube. <laughs> <laughs> I find the chowder tube quite uh, disturbing and I don't want a bowl of tube chowder. However, it seems like some of the people on the internet want tube chowder and I don't blame them. In the beginning, I thought it was potato. I thought it was like a nice little vichyssoise from the tube. But you know, it's not. It's not vichyssoise. It is. It's soup. It's chowder with squids in it. So it's like clam chowder, but it's alive. (laughs) And the Mandalorian doesn't even seem to be thrown off by the fact that he's the child is eating live squid instead he's like don't play with your food meanwhile the food is playing with him you know (laughs) i'm I'm still thrown off by this and the fact is is that like do does everyone get one little squid in every bowl one squid per plate is that the delicacy of it all is it even a delicacy is this like poor man's food is this really good Do people go to trask to have this tube chowder What's the deal? I I don't know. I don't <laughs> think that people go to Trask for tube chowder. Uh, I really don't. <laughs> but I am wishing that we had had this episode when we did our Food and Star Wars episode, you know, years ago in March. <laughs> <laughs> Decades ago. Decades ago. In the beginning of quarantine. In the beginning of quarantine in March. <laughs> Tube chowder, same way. Yeah, tube tube chowder is a lot. I'm gonna be honest. I 
you know, if we're talking about food, that kind of texture of food, I don't really jive with. Um, so I would not travel to Trask for tube chowder. I don't know what I would travel to Trask for, but, it, you know, not on the list is tube chowder. Doesn't seem like I would travel there for anything. They're bad at rebuilding ships. Like, all of a sudden, the Mandalorian, the Razor Crest now looks like a pirate ship, which I think is hilarious. I really liked this touch. I really liked the ending. It was funny. It was great. You're right in the beginning of the episode when you talked about how this episode has, like, a lot of moments of levity and comedy, and I feel like that one was really funny. (laughs) And I like, maybe, you know what, Caitlin? Maybe we would go there to get some quality cable knit sweaters. That is what we go to Trask for. I want to meet the costume designer who was like, yes, let's put the Moncala in sweaters and overalls. They they really, they probably took out a loan at L.L. Bean or something. <laughs> it's very Gloucester, Massachusetts. It's it very is. the perfect storm. It, I, I, I love it. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to say that perhaps it was an homage to Knives Out and Chris Evans. If it was, that's great because that is also very Massachusetts. It's just very New England. Really it nailing it. <laughs> I, I loved it. And the fact that Frogman had his own like knit scarf was was great. Well, they have to keep warm. Don't they forget do. about that. They're they cold blooded. So they I, have to keep warm. I also feel like they need to be moist. I feel like he needs to walk around with like a humidifier. Yeah. You know? Okay, let's talk about Frog Family because that reunion. I was sobbing in the morning. I this is the it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. Like I think it was actually cuter than Baby Yoda. I'm gonna be honest. It, the the moment itself was so perfectly directed. The the joy that I felt from Frog Lady seeing her frog husband when she gets off the ship and she's looking around. There's that panicky moment as an audience member where I was like, if he's not here, I'm I'm gonna be shock fired. So mad. I'm gonna be so mad. And the thing is that I knew he was there because he's in the trailer. The shot is there, but I do, I still panicked. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I feel like that's a side of good direction directing because I was like, oh my god, if he's not here, this is just the worst thing that could happen. And then a beat, and he's there, and the <laughs> the running to each other, the hands out, and then they Ugh. touch their hands to each other. Hands are a language, and then they just nuzzle each other. It was just the most beautiful thing ever. And I can't believe this is what's so great about Star Wars. Star Wars made me care about a frog person. And her frog family and frog husband, they don't have names, but they love each other and they're willing to go from opposite ends of the galaxy to preserve their family. It's just so beautiful and it just worked so well. I loved it so much. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. It was (laughs) it was kind of everything. (laughs) I loved seeing their apartment, their little it was it was so cozy. Their little frog family homestead. They had a little wooden bowl, not for tube chowder, but for baby frog. It was, it was precious. And yeah, I was watching it this morning. Like, if that husband is not here, we are. We are gonna have some problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, Frog Lady, we're adopting Frog Lady. <laughs> <laughs> she must be happy. Her frog yeah. children must grow up in a loving and stable environment. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just important. Yeah, I I love them. I love the call of her just calling out. She looked so small. All the Mon Calamari are so much bigger and like taller than her, and she was just walking around the dock 
looking for her husband. Oh, my gosh. And then they walk off hands, hand-holding together again. Just beautiful. And the Mandalorian is like, um, wait, others like me, please and thank you. <laughs> it's like, you found your other person, but what about me? Yeah. <laughs> Trackman is like, I gotta go. We've been away a long time. We, we got we some eggs to take care of. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I will say that even throughout this episode, when he had to be, when baby Yoda was dropped off to be babysat, I was like, please do not eat an egg. <laughs> yeah. Let's check in about that because last time you were concerned, I wasn't concerned. What are your thoughts now? I mean, I'm still concerned from the last episode. I think I think that it was too much in the last yeah. episode. Yeah. And but I'm, you know, I'm glad that he did not eat any more <laughs> this episode. Yeah. So, I think that you know, maybe he's learning or maybe it's not really even baby Yoda learning, it's Mandalorian learning how to better teach baby yoda so i'm glad that we did not eat any more eggs this episode truly right i I mean i do think that these two episodes when paired together when there's a shot of baby yoda looking through the egg jar and then the tadpole like emerges from the egg and he's just filled with wonder i do think that it was a moment that was supposed to contrast the last episode of Wow. And he, he goes like, whoa, whoa. You know, he's astounded. Um, and I think that he, there has to be, a, I think there was a moment of, wow, this is really cool and I want to stay. And then even at the end when the Mandalorian picks him up from like babysitting and staying there with the frog baby and he loves the frog baby and wants to take the frog baby. And I I don't know. I think that there was something really cute about that. I do you know, last episode, I wasn't that worried about it, but I definitely understand where people are coming from in terms of the the that it didn't totally work. Because, yeah, I think that we were supposed to care about Frog Lady and the preservation of her line. Uh, that was the through line on these past two episodes. And in this episode even proves that we were supposed to care. And we did care because that moment was so great. And just as an aside, it really does worry me that fandom, you know, people had a lot of concerns, particularly women, about the tonality, the difference, the the fact that it maybe just wasn't handled the best. And I think that it's a valuable criticism. And one that I was I found I was really fascinated by because it's it's not something that really stuck out to me, but it stuck out to you, obviously. And I feel like as a fandom, I don't think we supported enough people who had some valid criticisms about whether or not that needed to have some sort of sensitivity reading or if the tone didn't come out um, in the right way. I really do think that some people had a criticism with it, some people didn't, but what was really disheartening was seeing the clickbait websites and even Vanity Fair, which is a reputable publication, write clickbait titles and really take a lot of fans rightful criticism out of context and it turned into another placement of bullying women in the star wars fandom online and this happens so much when women have criticisms of star wars doesn't mean they don't like the product uh it just means that they have something to say and that something that maybe the the director or the writer or you know everyone who worked on it didn't notice yet 
it made it into the final product. And I feel like we're not, I don't know. I just don't think we as a fandom are doing enough to support people who have valid criticisms. There's no room for debate online. And it has turned into, this was just a a really minute example of how minor criticisms can be blown way out of proportion and therefore be like thrown back into the faces of people who have every right to criticize a product that we are a consumer of. Um, And it was really disheartening and uh, made me think a lot about the last episode. And I know on the show, I said that I didn't really have a problem with it, but I, I really do think that it 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 deserved a second look. I just feel like in the past week, we as a fandom could have banded together a lot better um, when it comes to uh, criticism about our favorite show, our favorite movie. And it, it doesn't mean you're any less of a fan because you have a critique. And um, the way that it has been spun was just really disappointing. I completely agree. And as someone who just had a little bit more of a critique with it last week, even watching the the conversation shift online. And I know that a lot of our listeners don't actively, like aren't actively on Twitter, but I think it is worth talking about just to see how these stories get spun and how um, stereotypes happen within fandom. And so I think if you, if you're not super active on Twitter and, um, I don't know what conversations on Facebook or Instagram really looked like in regards to this episode. So maybe you have a different experience from that platform or just like, you're just watching it at home in your living room and you listen to like us and that's it. You know what I mean? I think everyone has a very different perspective of these situations, but I know even even within my own, I'll say it, echo chamber on Twitter, it became it became really harsh to talk about this issue. And I think a lot of women, if a lot of women had the issue of, you know, a lot of women have problems with fertility and that kind of thing. And and it kind of hit a hit a little too close for home for some people. And even if they've never had issues with fertility, um, it just, it seemed a little insensitive. Uh, and like we said, maybe just uh, pushed it a little bit too far. And for me, I think the hard part of that episode was, you know, knowing that there was this horror element to the episode, right? Things that are part of the horror genre are not nice. So it makes sense. But having to and having the episode make us empathize so much with the frog lady and have this kind of horrific thing happen to her that she's not really aware of, I think, was hard to watch. But then, um, you know, and some people didn't have an issue with it, though, and, and that's totally fine, too. But the way that it got spun in the media of Star Wars fans always take critiques too far, that was completely blown out of proportion and not at all the case. It was people's reaction to very valid criticism because they didn't have a problem with what was happening on screen and decided that it was fans who did have a critique who were blowing things out of proportion. And then that got blown out of proportion. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but like Charlotte said, it ended up with people just not really listening to people's valid criticism of one element of this show that a lot of people still really enjoy. Like, that was my critique last week. I still love The Mandalorian. I'm still watching it every week. You know what I mean? I'm still very obsessed with it. I still loved In and Baby Yoda. But that was something that I think, you know, next season to have better reflection on of of how tones are being conveyed 
in TV shows like this. And I think it's always hard when you see either creators pushing back on that kind of critique or really big uh, journalists and publications who aren't a part of these fandoms and communities to understand the nuances that happen within them because there is a lot of nuance and it moves very quickly. And so for them to just take these big sweeping headlines and say Star Wars fans are making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill in regards to an episode of The Mandalorian. That's you're not understanding what's going on here and you're not paying mm-hmm. attention to what's to what the actual nuanced, valid, thought out criticism of this one thing is, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like that was really rambly um, and a roundabout way of saying that the internet can be a hard place and nuance is often dead on it. But, you know, these these conversations are still important um, no matter what kind of – what your opinion is on the thing that's happening in this fictional universe. But I hope that in the future, publications and creators who are responding to these kinds of critiques um, maybe keep in mind or just be more aware of what mm-hmm. the actual tweet-by-tweet tweet conversation is <laughs> rather than – looking at four accounts that have 10,000 followers and going off of their tweets alone. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think for me, I found this to be an exercise in lack of empathy for a a lot of people's opinions and how it was immediately spun into something that was, how could you think this? You're so stupid for thinking about this without even one second thinking of or having any sort of empathy for someone else's point of view. And the ironic thing is, is that for me, I think that in in this two episode arc with Frog Lady, the whole thing is about empathy, is about maybe (laughs) Baby Yoda and also Din having empathy for this, this, this woman who needs to get from point A to point B in order to save her family. And by the end of it, you see that both of them feel a lot of empathy for, um, and, uh, you know, excitement, I think, for frog lady and frog husband and their little family and i i just i feel like it's a it was just a point that was totally missed online and i was disappointed by it and i think that we as a fandom could do a lot better with how we empathize with a lot of other people's and a lot of other fans uh point of views yeah and their experiences because exactly at the end of the day the critique if you like really want to distill it down i think the critique was that you went for – the show says that it was going for horror and that horror didn't overwhelm the frustration at what was happening to Frog Lady. Like the tones didn't match what, what the audience were, ended up responding to on screen versus what it was quote-unquote supposed to be. And, and then the detail of here's why it didn't work was – Baby Yoda eating eggs, empathy with Frog Lady. Like, it was very clear to people who had that critique why it didn't land for them and why it was hard to watch for some people too. But that really got lost in the shuffle of the online conversation. And it, I think you're right, it was a lesson in empathy and listening online. Yeah. So that being said. Yeah. Thank God that Frog Family is together. Have to yeah. give it up for Bryce. She gets it. I know she gets it. And I would love Bryce to have 
uh, a couple more episodes in The Mandalorian, maybe a couple more episodes in another Star Wars series or her whole series or her, her own series or something, because I, I really do feel like she gets it. Yeah, I would love to see Bryce doing a lot more in Star Wars. What I think is cool is that with this episode, she really because last season was her directorial debut, correct? That's a good question, but I don't think it was. I think that she had a couple of short films, but maybe this was yeah. on the the largest scale. I think I think that sounds right. So I think it was cool for her to be trusted with kind of the unveiling of a really important character to a lot of fans and also yes. the unveiling of Ahsoka name drop. <laughs> <laughs> Which know? is an important addition in itself. It is. It is. Let's – okay. Let's talk about Bo-Katan. Yeah. And yeah. We got to. <laughs> let, me, let me bring you back to a very okay. important episode of The Clone Wars. <laughs> okay. Please do. It is A Friend in Need from <laughs> season four, episode 14, right? Yeah. And you know who's in this episode? Lux Monteri. Lux Monteri. <laughs> we are we are the only podcast I think that talks about Lux Monteri <laughs> as much this much. We're and the only ones that care. <laughs> I say this every time we bring him up. I, Lux Monteri has such a bad reputation in fandom. And I don't understand why, because his episodes are some of the most interesting episodes. And he is a character. I'm like really on a soapbox now. He as a character has such an interesting progression throughout the Clone Wars and beyond. I just I don't get it, people. Someone explain it to me (laughs) because I don't get it. The first time we see him in Heroes on Both Sides, that was like Charlotte and I's episode that we just talked nonstop about in 2017 Sky Talkers. We were like, Heroes on Both Sides is like such an amazing poetic episode, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're like, this is a turning point. This, this is it, guys. This, is it. this, this <laughs> explains the Clone War. <laughs> and you know what? That's still true. But A Friend in Need is is so fascinating. We, we You've got Lux. You've got Ahsoka. You've got a little bit of Forbidden Romance. You've got a Snow Hood. You've got Death Watch, you've got Bo-Katan, you've got the Darksaber. It has everything, and it's all ra- because of Lux. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so if you don't know, and I think this is part of the episode of Friend in Need where we meet Bo-Katan, why I think it's important, also part of my soapbox for Lux Fonteri. Uh, his mother, Mina, mentored Padme Amidala before the Civil War, before the war broke up, the, before the Clone Wars broke out. And they were really good friends. But Onderon and Mina Bonteri, they sided with the Separatists. And Padme obviously did not. And so in Heroes on Both Sides, Padme goes and visits Mina to talk about peace talks. And she brings Ahsoka along. Ahsoka learns that not everything is as cut and dry as she thinks it is when it comes to Separatists and that they're not all evil and she meets Lux, and it's like a whole thing. So then flash forward later, Mina is murdered by Count Dooku, and Lux then, and he's like dethroned from Onderon, or he's no longer in a position of power on Onderon. And so then he basically has this revenge that he needs to enact against Count Dooku for his mother Mina. And in order to do that, he aligns himself with Death Watch. 
with Bo-Katan. How is no one interested in Lex Bonteri? I don't get it. <laughs> okay, Caitlin, gotta bring it back. You just... <laughs> I think you have to let the Lex thing go. <laughs> I just someone needs to explain to me why he's not an interesting person. He and and the thing is too is that Mina was also like a pacifist, and so was Lux. when we first meet him. But then when we see him again, he, it's all about revenge for him. He goes against Ahsoka. He um, uses himself as bait in order to lure Count Dooku to him so that he can then lead Death Watch to Count Dooku. It's it's a whole – he pretends to be Ahsoka's fiancé. They <laughs> – it's, it's a whole th- – this is the episode where Ahsoka decapitates a whole slew of Death Watch people in one swoop. It's yeah, amazing. It's like, you know so what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's so good. And and the conversations that Ahsoka and Lux have about Death Watch are also really fascinating, especially when we start thinking about Bo-Katan and Din uh, and all of their relationships to the Mandalorians and to Death Watch because Bo-Katan was a member of Death Watch who was against her sister, Satine, who ruled Mandalore, who was a pacifist, and Bo and Death Watch we're very much not. I think it's really funny, Caitlin, that you have a couple of crusades in the Star Wars fandom. <laughs> Number one being bringing back the second trilogy as like into the vernacular of Star Wars fandom. And, you know, it, for in, some people might argue that it's working. Some people might argue that it's not working. <laughs> but I also feel like something that's bubbling under the surface is your justice for Lux uh, situation. <laughs> And I think bringing Lux into this conversation is really interesting and great. And I'm glad that you framed everything through the lens of Lux. <laughs> but lens of Lux. Lux. But I, I just like I want to bring us back to Bo-Katan for a little bit because I think she, she's there. And I just think that she has a really, really interesting storyline. And if you're listening to this and you're just not that familiar with Star Wars animation, have no fear because <laughs> Bo-Katan just has a lot of different times where she was associated with a lot of different people. And I just find it really, really fascinating. And I can't remember if you mentioned this, Caitlin, but something that's really interesting about that one episode of The Clone Wars that you were referencing is that John Favreau was a voice actor. John Favreau, the creator of The Mandalorian. <laughs> yes. So... I think what's what's interesting is that uh, so the first time we see Bo-Katan, she's associated with Death Watch, and then eventually she leaves Death Watch because Maul. They, there's a there's a lot of political entanglements that happen, but the the shortcut, Cliff's Notes version is that she gets in a disagreement about Maul taking power of Mandalore, which she doesn't believe. Um, should be the case because she believes that whoever rules Mandalore should be Mandalorian. And obviously Maul wants it for power and not necessarily to rule Mandalore um, justly or the way that she thinks. So there's a splinter group of people who stay uh, in Death Watch um, in accordance with Maul. And there are people who stay with Bo-Katan. And um, from here, a lot of a lot of stuff happens, right? Um. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so much stuff and it's really interesting because obviously throughout this we have seen a lot of different sides of Bo-Katan's character from being so ruthless as a a literal member of an extremist group Ahsoka in that one episode is like they're extremists we don't even deal with them you don't want to deal with them they are basically crazy and I, I think what's ironic about that is because at this point Ahsoka and the Jedi are warmongers and that layer is cannot be escaped when you talk about 
the Clone Wars is the what <laughs> the Jedi are dealing with. So it really it really uh, shines a light on how extreme Death Watch is. So uh, personally, I think it's really interesting that Pre Vizsla who was voiced by Jon Favreau, a.k.a. Jon Favreau's introduction into what I like to call deep Star Wars. So <laughs> when he, he jumps into a voice actor role with with and works with Dave Filoni, is blown away by the whole process, has an experience where his kids really loved it, his kids were really blown away by it. And he was like, this is so cool. And this story is really interesting. And Pre Vizsla is as ruthless as it come, as they come, right? Mm-hmm. He's evil. He's he dies, <laughs> and I think yes. that John Favreau was uh, upset about that because I think he grew to like that character and how evil he was and everything. But what I think is really interesting is all from this episode. It feels like it's a nesting ground for a whole separate mythology, and that mythology is the Mandalorian. And so, how interesting is it? Is that we're going to be mining? basically this time period in Clone Wars going forward, because what we're going to have is Bo-Katan. We're going to see, we're going to see Ahsoka. We already have Din's past being explored with Death Watch or Children of the Watch. We'll get into that in a second. Um, and so I think that it's it's worth talking about in terms of John Favreau being like, wow, there's so much here. Wouldn't it be cool if we told a story from the point of view of someone who grew up within Death Watch and thought that was normal and thought that was what it should be. And here we have Bo-Katan who has splintered off from Death Watch and recognizes it as an extremist group because of what she's experienced and her team up with Ahsoka and how her life has changed. Ultimately, all the way up until Rebels, if you haven't seen Rebels, her story in Rebels is even more interesting because at this point we find out that Sabine, who takes the the Darksaber from Maul in Rebels, names Bo-Katan as the rightful ruler and the rightful wielder of the Darksaber. And the Darksaber also has a really interesting history we've talked about on the show. And I'm sorry that I'm monologuing, but I do feel like this background is really important and really just fascinating in discussing and theorizing where the show is going to go. But in Rebels, the Darksaber, we learn that it's an ancient weapon that was first wielded by Tar Vizsla. And Tar Vizsla was the first Mandalorian Jedi. Here's the quote. The Darksaber was one of a kind. Legend tells that it was created over a thousand years ago by Tar Vizsla, the first Mandalorian ever inducted into the Jedi Order. After his passing, the Jedi kept the saber in their temple. That was until members of the House Vizsla snuck in and liberated it. They used the saber to unify the people and strike down those who would oppose them. At one time, they ruled all of Mandalore wielding this blade. The saber is an important symbol to that house and respected by other clans. So... The Vizslas also aren't dead. We actually saw John Favreau voice another Vizsla <laughs> in season one of The Mandalorian Underground. It was Pax Vizsla. So whew, there's a lot to unpack here. And I just feel like this is just so Star Wars that we're really jumping straight into it. And there's just a whole lot of stuff that we have to sort through before we get to the heart of what the message is and what the story is really trying to tell. I mean, that's exactly what George Lucas did by choosing to tell A New Hope first before all of this, right? And we get all this backstory and everything sort of makes sense in context. And I honestly feel like that's exactly what's going to happen with The Mandalorian. And it's going to be told to us in a way that 
makes sense within the story of the Mandalorian itself. But also as a fan, we can go back and be like, oh, my God, thinking about all these different points of view from the Clone Wars, from Rebels. But what Bo-Katan is thinking, what Din has been through, what does this mean for the Darksaber? Is this really going to be a, a piece? Is the Darksaber going to be something that really does unify Mandalore and the Jedi, the Force users again, because there's all this stuff that there's a whole history about that as well. And I I just feel like there's a lot there. And Kaylin, what do you think? Take a breath. <laughs> Take a breath. <laughs> I think that was a fantastic monologue. And <laughs> something you said in the middle there about like what is like what what are we doing with all of this history and with all of this story? What's the point to this story? And I think that this is what is cool about having a universe like Star Wars is that the point of this whole thing for Din. Din's like overall character journey, like many characters, is one of belonging and identity. Mm-hmm. Finding out your identity, your belonging in the greater picture, the greater scheme of the galaxy, right? And this whole thing, I think last week I said that Din needs to pick up a history book, and still very true this week. And you know, Din keeps saying this is the way, right? We keep hearing the Mandalorian say this is the way, this is the way. But I think Din's character progression is learning that there is more than one way and more than one way to be a Mandalorian. And the way that he learns that and I think in the future perhaps renounces the Watch, the children of the Watch, is through learning about people like Bo-Katan and learning the truth of what actually happened. And so we can have this journey of self-discovery for Din, but it comes through – the story of Mandalore that has been seeded in a lot of different other places in Star Wars. And I think that that is so cool. <laughs> and I I really like it. <laughs> Can I just say that your point of view about Din needing to pick up a history book is very true, but I think it needs to be approached from a place of compassion. Because at this point, I think in this episode, as we have been suspicious of, I think we've learned that Din was raised in a cult. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, yes. But Din is on <laughs> his own now. He's grown up. He can find a history book too. Yeah, he can. But, and I think that's going to be part of his journey. Yeah, it, it is just so fascinating. This episode really got me thinking about even more so than usual <laughs> of what the end of this series looks like. And we've talked so much about, you know, Din taking off his helmet for good. Does he stay with baby Yoda? Do they part ways? Do they sacrifice? Does Din sacrifice himself for his child that he comes to view as his actual child and not just a quest? We got a couple uh, uses of the word quest in this episode, which is great. <laughs> Love it when they use the word quest. Um, because Bo-Katan, right, so throughout the Clone Wars and Rebels, she loses and gains back the Darksaber at a couple different points in the timeline. And the last time we saw her, she had the Darksaber in Rebels, uh, if we're looking at the timeline. So she has lost the Darksaber sometime between the beginning of A New Hope time period and, you know, five to eight years later. Mm-hmm. Um So something has happened in the middle there that now Gideon has the Darksaber. And I think Bo is such an interesting character because when we first see her with Death Watch, uh, Pre Vizsla, uh, yes, Pre Vizsla, 
I was, I'm getting my Vizsla's mixed up. <laughs> Brie Vizsla has the dark saber, and they believe that that is what it takes to rule Mandalore. Death Watch is something that has the dark saber, and it's viewed as the symbol to unite Mandalore. But they're an extremist group too. Also, keep in mind this doesn't seem to be something that Din is familiar with, at least as far as we know. We heard him. We heard. Him hear Bo-Katan talk about the Darksaber in the cockpit. Maybe he didn't hear. I don't know. But we haven't seen him react to the Darksaber at all or acknowledge that he knows anything about it. And I just – this – sorry, I'm, I'm kind of – my head is spinning a little bit. But I think it's interesting that Bo-Katan recognizes the value of the Darksaber even after she – like doesn't believe in Death Watch anymore. And when they were the ones that held the Darksaber to be like the thing. And then we see other clans of Mandalore, you know, unite around this Darksaber too. And I wonder if like the Watch really even had that kind of respect for the Darksaber or even thought to teach about the Darksaber when people like Din were growing up. I don't know. I think it's a lot to kind of sift through when we're thinking about people's perceptions of symbols and of history inside the Star Wars universe. I think there's a lot going on. (laughs) And I think it is kind of hard to parse through sometimes in everyone's motivations and just how all the pieces ended up on the board and the way that we're seeing them now. And that's the really fun thing about Star Wars too, is that it is made out of order. So like, in the timeline, the last time we saw Bo-Katan was in Rebels, but the last time we physically saw her on screen in like a new appearance was in Revenge of the Sith timeline with Ahsoka. It kind of messes with your head. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I I just and like the okay, so the conversation between Bo and Din, Bo-Katan and Din when they're sitting at the restaurant and they're talking about Mandalore. This is so interesting because we, you know, Din, his me- – oh, this was my theory I wanted to bring up too. I'm sorry. About Din and the Children of the Watch. We have this kind of – I think the show leads you to believe, suggests, plants the seed in your mind that Din was rescued as a child from an attack on his planet and that the Mandalorians rescued him. But I think kind of taking this – knowledge from Bo-Katan, I kind of have a new working theory that Children of the Watch, Death Watch, were the ones that actually attacked Din's home planet and kidnapped him to be a foundling rather than rescuing him. And I think that that will, if that's true, that will put a really new spin on how he views himself and honestly who he is as a person that the people who he believed to have rescued him were really the people that stole him. What's really interesting about that theory, because I actually think it's a, I think it's a really good theory. When you told me it the other day, I was like, wow, I think that makes a lot of sense because I think there's something a little ironic about how straightforward that flashback was when it was finally revealed to us at the end of season one. I think we were all like, as it was given to us in all these different pieces, and then we finally saw it all put together. We were like, yeah, that's what we thought. You know, he was yeah. rescued by a Mandalorian by being in the ditch, <laughs> you know? And I think by thinking about it this way, turning it on its head that Death Watch or the Children of the Watch 
attacked the city. Maybe it was protected by or and part of the Trade Federation. Therefore, the Trade Federation were the ones that were protecting the city. And that's what we saw in the flashback. It just gives a whole different viewpoint of it. And not only that, does it it adds to this whole idea of the foundling. So if the is the foundling something that we're like, wow, yes, like the adopted children of the Mandalorian that we are going to train in the ways, you know, we always give a little bit back to the foundlings. That was a big part of season one and one that kind of gave us all pause of of like, okay, so there's this whole culture of foundling, youngling, children who are brought into the Mandalore, right? And who are you always set aside some of your Beskar to be made into armor for these these children or to be sold, I suppose, for money for these children. And then you have a, the concept of Din saving Baby Yoda and having a foundling for himself, right? And Baby Yoda in himself is a foundling just like Din was. But how does he correct what was done to him if something awful was in terms of if he was kidnapped from his parents who were murdered by the children of the watch and let's take a second to talk about if there's a difference between death watch and children of the watch i think we have to think that there are some differences maybe not a ton because i think it probably was an offshoot or a continuation of death watch death watch being the extremist group children of the watch perhaps being the next generation of this extremist group i personally think that that's what it is because i think that goes with the themes of the sequel trilogy about um repeated horrors and how the like the dead don't die really in terms of um evil it just will never be extinguished and how just one ideology if it was wiped out it does rise again I think that that was a really important and really true theme um, that was presented in the sequel trilogy. And that's the period that we're living in right now with The Mandalorian. So to me, it makes sense. So it's interesting to me to think about if this show is a journey of identity um, for Din, for him to discover that about himself. And then how does he act upon his own foundling in a different way than what was done to him as a boy? Yeah. And I think it's kind of crazy, too, to think about all the Mandalorians that we saw in season one were all a part of this, too. Yeah. Um, that they you – know, we have the armorer who, you know, have you ever taken your helmet off? Has that ever been taken off for you? She is a part of this, too. And what is her story? Was she taken, rescued, whatever it is, like Din was, too? What I think is also something that's important to take note of when we're talking about Mandalorian culture is that – There is this continuity throughout the culture in the way that, you know, Bo-Katan, like they use the same vernacular, things like foundling, saying this is the way. And I don't know if that's just a thing that because Bo-Katan was a part of Death Watch, but I think it is bigger than that. Like they, you know, I'm I'm, like Sabine, I'm part of Clan Ren. Like they're still on Bo-Katan saying I'm still part of Clan Clan Cries. Cries, yeah. Cries. Uh, and she says Crees, and I was like, "That's interesting," because <laughs> I I could have sworn that in the Clone Wars it was Cries, but I, it's okay. You know, she's Bo-Katan. She <laughs> yeah, is she Bo-Katan. Can, she can, yeah. <laughs> it's whatever. It's Le- Leia, Leah. Who knows? <laughs> Han, Han. I don't know. 
It's just part of the tradition of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But they're still using these same code words, kind of like how we were talking about last week with Din saying, you know, may the force be with you as almost like a password to get by. And But it's obviously a little deeper here. And one of my favorite parts of this episode was when Bo-Katan used it in two different ways when she said, this is the way. She used it twice in this episode. And the first time it was mocking Din when she changes the deal about what they're actually going to do on the ship. And she's mocking him when she says, this is the way. You know, you got to mm-hmm. listen to me. Because earlier in the episode, Din had said – when when they were asking about the Jedi and Bo-Katan says, what do you know about the Jedi? And he says, nothing. I was hoping that you would tell me because of the creed and that there's just this understanding that you do whatever you can to help a fellow Mandalorian, no questions asked. And when she says, this is the way, she's mocking him about you're going to help me because of the creed, right? Because you're Mandalorian and you value honor above everything else. But then at the end... When he she gives him the name of Ahsoka Tano and she's like, take the foundling there, terminology that Din uses. And she says, this is the way. It's It feels more familial and uh, caring the way that she says it at the end there. And I, I don't know what the right word is, but like they're connected and that this is something that they're both a part of. And I find it really interesting to think about if all of the the other Mandalorians that Din has ever really come in contact with on Navarro were all a part of the Children of the Watch, the Watch, Death Watch, whatever it is. Um, and now these are the first, quote unquote, real different Mandalorians he's meeting. I don't know. It really is like Brave New World. <laughs> yeah. I I do feel like my head is spinning when we talk about this because I just feel like this episode added a whole different layer to how I think about the show and where it's going forward and how do I think about Din as a person. And I think overall, especially in this season, I'm seeing that Din is a good person, right? He's a, he's a good person. He cares a lot about honor, almost to a comical extent, right? <laughs> Like jet jetpacking off of the the ship as as soon as he's like they don't you know not they're not the same yeah they're not Mandalorian he's like Leaves. forget it jetpacks off it's so funny <laughs> and you know that's not the first time this season that he's done that but I do get a sense to me that Din is a person of compassion I mean obviously he wouldn't gone back have gone back for the child if he didn't feel a sense of uh helplessness towards it or a sense of compassion a sense of empathy at all and I feel like that doesn't really strike a chord with the rigidity of um, the clan uh, that he's a part of whether that is the children of the watch or the just the underground Mandalorians that we saw I feel like it's different and I I feel like he really is going to have an identity crisis if he has isn't already about when more of his history is revealed to him. And I just, I feel like Bo-Katan is in an interesting spot in order to act as a little bit of a foil for, for Din as a character. And yeah, I do think this was a brief introduction with her, but I, I, I definitely think she's going to be back because at this point, Bo-Katan, as she should have been, 
this is this makes perfect sense for her to be in this episode because she is the through line to why does Gideon have the dark saber? What does he want with it? And yeah. because her conflict is with, with the dark saber. Um, this whole episode was about how do I get the dark saber back? This is what I need. I need these weapons. I need this information so I can get that done. And Din was briefly a part of that, but because Gideon is after the Mandalorian and the child, he will be a part of that again. And what what will happen is I hope that a lot of history is revealed about what the Darksaber is. What I mean, Gideon to me is a really big question mark about what he wants uh, with the culture of the Mandalorians and the Darksaber and why he has it. And I mean, I think this has been on our minds for a whole year about what the heck is up with that. And I just find it I just find it really interesting that all these layers are suddenly being put upon us. I also want to mention I think that to your theory about the fact that we could have missaw and misunderstood um the flashback as child Din is being rescued by Death Watch. There's a scene in this where when the Mandalorian is in the water after the most surprising thing ever happens when they're pushed in and the Kraken or whatever, the mama creature, <laughs> eats the baby. And when Bo-Katan and the rest of the night owl- owls come and save him and he's in in the box under underwater, the shot of Bo-Katan reaching her hand out to him. I mean, hands are a language. This is a direct mirror to when the Mandalorian helped Din when he was a child. And here we have two, like two different groups of Mandalorians um, helping out Din. And I feel like it's really significant to think about what's the difference between these two. And I, I actually think that they look the same, but they're very different is kind of, what the what the show is trying to say uh, here in this moment. It's very purposeful, I think. Yeah, I think that was a great parallel that you pointed out when we were watching it. And I don't know, like I said earlier, it makes me wonder like if we finally get the Darksaber back, if the end of this series is restoring Mandalore and yeah. going back to Mandalore and Din is there, the child is there, Bo has got the Darksaber, and they're able to really, you know, get rid of the Empire's influence on that homeworld. And I don't know. And it makes me – I just – I think so much about Gideon, too, in all of this and how he got the Darksaber. And I have a theory that Gideon is not really even with the Empire, but that he is some kind of – he's something else and is just – like using the empire in order to have access to power and weaponry in order to get what he wants that is somehow tied to baby Yoda. But now I'm kind of thinking like, well, what if he is a Mandalorian, but is with the empire? Because we see in rebels that like Sabine's family has aligned itself with the empire in rebels. So what's to say that other Mandalorians haven't either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's true. I don't know. Also, does he just not have armor then? He has a cape. <laughs> if he so. chooses not to wear it to like go incognito, or was he a part of the Children of the Watch too before? Because he knows, knows Din's name. Yeah, I mean he knew Kara's name too, but yeah. that could be for Empire reasons since she was a a rebel fighter shock trooper. Shock trooper, yes. At some point, but I I don't know. I mean. Would Din even recognize him since his whole life he was surrounded by people with their helmets on? No. 
you know? So I think that there's a lot going on there. And I do feel like they're going to surprise us with certain things regarding Gideon, with how Mandalore will be restored. And I just keep coming back to the fact that, like, why the Mandalorian? Number one, why did Jon Favreau want to tell this story? Number two, why is Dave Filoni so excited about this story? And number three, how does it fundamentally change what we know from before? And I think all those are compounded into this really interesting answer of Jon Favreau recognized that there was a whole mythology to be told with Mandalorians that was confusing in the Clone Wars and Rebels, and yet really intriguing. And here, I feel like we're going to finally be able to uncover it and get a firm mythology for understanding what Mandalore has gone through. I mean, I don't know about you, Caitlin, but, you know, I've after I watched this episode, The Heiress, I went back and watched a bunch of, Ma- of Mandalorian episodes for the Clone Wars and Rebels, um, the one that we referenced in the beginning, and just a bunch after that, too. And they're great. They're some of my favorite episodes in both those series. But sometimes I have issues retaining um, the information because it doesn't really stick with me. Sometimes it's not super relevant to the plot of the rebellion against the empire. And I feel like that was that show. But this show, The Mandalorian, is not about that. It's partially about that, or we see that kind of layered on top of it. But now I do feel like we're going to what the, this um, unbelievable gift that I think George Lucas had created, right, of this whole Mandalorian culture and introducing it even more heavily in the Clone Wars. And admittedly, I'm not that familiar with Legends. So I assume there's a lot of Mandalorian information in Legends. Therefore, that is probably mined and kind of uh, revisited in canon now. And I think that just by even explaining this timeline and making it so that it it fits in with all the themes of Star Wars in terms of hope, identity, belonging, um, love, family, found family. It, it's just fascinating to watch it unfold. And honestly, I think that the creators are really having fun doing that because it is so different. It doesn't fit into these, this like puzzle piece of the Skywalker saga, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like this great combination of what I think are the goals of the show, like what you were talking about. I, you know, today I was super lucky that the art of the Mandalorian book came in. Charlotte and I weren't lucky enough to get an early copy and mine came in today. And first off, this book is amazing. Uh, Maybe one of my favorite art of books that have come out uh, by Phil Shostak. So definitely if you're interested I've I've flipped through it for about an hour and and obsessed with it already. But there are a lot of great tidbits and interviews in this, like there usually are. But the book goes through each episode, and like each episode gets kind of its own chapter. And in the beginning of it, there is an inter- not an interview, but uh, a foreword uh, quotes from Dave and John. And John Favreau is really talking about wanting to do like a, a simple and clean western story in star wars and i think that that when we look at kind of that foundational inspiration of simple and clean western story i think that really informs what we see on screen and i know that that's something that we've been talking a lot about of especially me like not expecting things to be as episodic as they were but Mm -hmm. when you're looking at stuff like this that john was saying back then it's like oh okay that makes sense that that's what this is and it is this 
quote unquote, simple and clean Western story. But then you have this other side of it with the Mandalorians that is incredibly complex and has been and has something that Dave has been creating with George Lucas for over a decade now. And so to be able to like lay those two things on top of each other with your titular character of the Mandalorian is it's a really cool combination, I think. And um, this season has been working really well. And, and last season too, but I'm I'm really enjoying season two so far. I think I am often, I love The Mandalorian. I just want to preface this by saying it, but I do kind of scratch my head at the universal appeal of The Mandalorian above a lot of other Star Wars projects. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think that's, exa- it's honestly purely because of what you just said of the simplicity around it and like the glorious simplicity about around it. It's not... Um, it is complicated enough that you and I can have an hour-long conversation about the future of the show and how it relates to the Clone Wars and everything, but the casual viewer can just watch it and be like, oh, super cool, like, new group of Mandalorians who helped out Din, you know? And here he goes on his journey once again. I mean, obviously, it's more than that, but I I do feel like there's an element of crafting this simple Western story that is really beautiful in its craft and that's what universally appeals to the audience i think that there's something for everyone in in a lot of the in a lot of ways about this story and i constantly revisit as to what is up with like this is the most popular show (laughs) it feels like in the world and i i love it so much but as someone who's been in star wars fandom for a while this like doesn't really happen it's this sort of excitement around the show feels so unique and I haven't felt it since The Force Awakens. And The Force Awakens, even I look back upon it and it didn't feel like this. And I feel like that's so joyous. And they definitely have tapped into something that is a universal experience. Yeah. Yeah, they really have. (laughs) (laughs) And it's working. Also, just before I go to my next point, because it's a little more of a humorous point, I just re- want to reflect on that for a second in terms of her talking about being the last of her line and how there's something in this episode about Frog Lady and Frog Husband preserving the last of their line and how both yeah. those things are sort of in marriage with each other in that there's a success story behind Frog Lady and Frog Husband. And hopefully we can use that as a foreshadowing point to see a success story of Bo-Katan reclaiming Mandalore because she is the last of her line. If perhaps the Mandalorian helps her in the way that the Mandalorian helped Frog Lady. Interesting. I just feel like there's a thematic link there. Well, there. I mean, this show really with the egg imagery, mother's lineage. It never quits. Loyalty. Uh yeah, it, it's, it never stops. <laughs> anyway, so my humorous point, which isn't that humorous, honestly, but <laughs> Corky, Corky Cryez, right? <laughs> Satine Cryez's nephew, question mark whether it's a nephew, because hello, Corky looked just like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Our friends at Blast Points, when we were on their show to do word association in the beginning of the year, I brought up Corky. Everyone thought I was saying the word quirky. <laughs> And all I'm saying is, does this mean Quirky Corky is dead? Because that is sad. <laughs> Our Quirky boy. <laughs> he gone. <laughs> What's the story there? I'm laughing, but I'm also like, where? where is he? Where's our Quirky boy? <laughs> I'm over here with my Lux soapbox and you're like, what happened to Quirky? 
that uh yeah charlotte and i were talking about this episode on the phone and suddenly she stops and goes oh my god corky is dead <laughs> a gray cloud consumed me and i was thinking about all the, the implications her beautiful corky boy <laughs> corky i thought you said corky <laughs> <laughs> top 10 podcasting moment hands down <laughs> it's very funny yeah just a little little tidbit that i wanted yeah. to bring in i i don't remember where we were <laughs> before corky we're really deep we're really deep into the, the meaning of the mandalorian and i was oh. like okay gotta bring in corky, gotta bring corky. in corky yeah <laughs> yeah i just i think that yeah the uh the simplicity of the storylines that sit upon the complexity of Mandalorian and galactic history is super fascinating and obviously really resonates with a lot of people. Totally. Okay, let's talk about Ahsoka. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we're just now talking about Ahsoka. Okay. I don't I just I can't believe number one that Bo Katan just said it. She, yeah, she just said it. She just straight up dropped Ahsoka Tano. She didn't say code name blah 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 she didn't say anything like that we're 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 not even guessing at this point ahsoka's coming and i feel like i don't know what to think about this is is Bo sending the mandalorian into a trap that look that she has at the end there is a little confusing it's a little sus honestly and i feel like i i don't know what to think <laughs> i don't know what to think <laughs> i think that yeah, I I don't know either. I think that because she's seen Baby Yoda, maybe she's like, maybe I should tell him where she is. <laughs> uh, because she, Bo-Katan knows who Yoda was, right? Um, she probably did. She probably did. Even if they never shared a scene together. So I think right. she might understand the uh, the levity of the situation. <laughs> perhaps but yeah i was i was so surprised i just i said this to charlotte on the phone it feels so great to in a way like feel catered to as an animated fan yes <laughs> in this episode to have someone like bo katan an animated character reference another animated character to a live action character is just i can't believe it <laughs> and I won't lie and say that I'm not uh, a little nervous about seeing Ahsoka in live action, but I love this character and I I haven't been disappointed in her yet. So mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm excited about it. I, I'm like nervous and with anticipation and wow, I hope I like what I see on screen with her. But the thing is, it's like if if this version of Ahsoka is not my favorite version, that's okay. Mm. And this is me talking to myself here yeah. <laughs> of like you the whole conversation of expectations and how that can really ruin something for you. And I'm mm-hmm. saying this now to try and keep myself in check for, you know, if it's next week or two weeks later, whenever we do finally see that character. Because I think this pretty much confirms we're going to see her on screen. Yeah, bringing her into the show is reason enough. I just I'm surprised that yeah they they went for it. Yeah, exactly. So I just in, until we see her, I will be reiterating to myself weekly of do not place perfection on this character for this first appearance in live action. That is uh, not fair coming I from think you. That a, a lot of the people. <laughs> 
who work on her are expecting that yeah. and are placing that upon themselves, which I can imagine that being a really big burden. Yeah. I'm I'm nervous too for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. And I'm yeah. sure that'll come up when we when we talk about her when she's on the show um, eventually, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I hope I'm surprised and I hope that it, it adds to the story in a really meaningful way. And I honestly don't see how it's not going to because every single like quote unquote cameo that we've seen actually does add to the story and bring up an interesting tie that I didn't even really think about before. And yeah, like I think Ahsoka makes sense to me as the link. Like who else is Bo-Katan going to say? You know, what, Luke Skywalker? No, she's not going to say that. Does Bo even know Luke? No. I, I think that he, he he does need to talk to a Force user. The thing that's interesting is that Ahsoka is not a Jedi, but will we be surprised upon the Ahsoka that we see? Because this Ahsoka is like four years past Rebels. Um and what had happened during that period after after the end of Rebels. And I don't know. I keep thinking about... I was rewatching Siege of Mandalore and how Ahsoka perhaps thought that maybe she'd come back to the Jedi Order after she had her own walkabout moment. Because in, in the Siege of Mandalore, remember she says not yet to Mace Windu when, when he asked, like, oh, you're not a Jedi yet? Or maybe it was to Yoda. Either way, it was during the hologram hologram conversation, the second episode of the mm-hmm. Siege of Mandalore. And I I think it's really interesting that piece of that nugget of information of like that Ahsoka wasn't completely done. And of course, this happens before Rebels, where she does say, I'm no Jedi. So it's like 15 years later, right? So she still doesn't claim herself as a Jedi. But what about now? When the Empire's fallen and Luke Skywalker, who is publicly a Jedi, is around and a name that every that people know. We know that from Lost Stars, right? That Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Han Solo are war heroes. Yeah. And their names are known throughout the galaxy. And I think that and not just Lost Stars and a lot of different pieces of Star Wars, but I feel like that was the first time I was like, wow, they're famous. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think that I mean the possibility of Ahsoka knowing and meeting uh, Luke Skywalker or Leia is so interesting to me. And I can't even handle it. Yeah, I think it's hard to even speculate, I think, because there are just so many possibilities. And this alone, the idea of Ahsoka even being in contact with Luke or Leia, and, you know, you mentioned, like, who is Bo-Katan going to send her to, send Din to, you know – this is our weekly conversation of information transmittal around the galaxy because Bo-Katan knows who Anakin Skywalker is. Yep. She knew Anakin Skywalker. And now yeah. she hears about Luke Skywalker, right? Like, it seems like Bo-Katan gets around. She, she, I, I feel like Bo-Katan knows a lot. I think she does too. <laughs> and even, and then, we're, you know, we're talking about Boba Fett too. I just think it's funny that we have all these characters who are like such crossover characters now, but... All of our characters that kind of have only existed within the Mandalorian thus far have not seen the rest of Star Wars, <laughs> so <laughs> they don't know anything <laughs> about these other people. I just think it's kind of funny, but I think that with Ahsoka, it like it's so crazy to even think about all the different routes they could go. You know, she's obviously in contact enough with Bo-Katan for for Bo-Katan to even know where she is. She is presumably staying at that place for a significant period of time 
or maybe I guess just got there and always tells Bo-Katan when she lands on a new planet. This is, of course, after the end of Rebels when Ahsoka shows up to Sabine on Lethal for them to go find Ezra. Have they found as is Ezra here too? Is Sabine here too? That's another Mandalorian who knows something about the Dark Saber. Also, why is Sabine not helping Bo-Katan with the Dark Saber? I guess maybe she's still searching for Ezra. So much, you know, <laughs> so much here. <laughs> and if if Ahsoka is in contact with Luke Skywalker, then is born at this point too. Is Luke? starting to even think about building a new Jedi temple at this juncture. (sighs) Like, literally, (laughs) the possibilities are endless. Or maybe then then I think we also have to think about the flip side of that is that Ahsoka is not in contact with any of these people. Maybe she's not going to – like, it seems so strange. It'll be weird to see Ahsoka, them have this conversation, and to not talk about Ezra (laughs) – at all (laughs) as rebels fans i think we're gonna be like anything else you want to talk about chit chat with your new friend din here (laughs) in regards to other jedi (laughs) i feel like it would be a little much though to bring in ezra yeah to be like i just got back from purple i just got back from purple hunting yeah let me go clean up freshen up Mm -hmm. before dinner yeah. But it will be so strange because a, a significant time has passed since that quote-unquote last mission that we saw her. Is she going to be wearing the right white cloak? I think it's going to be gray. I think it's going to be gray, not white. Maybe she's wearing some – you think she's going to be in a cloak? Yeah, I do because I think that ha- they'll have a reveal moment about her taking off her hood. It is just going – I'm so fa- – like I thought about with what Boba Fett would say to Din – and how that kind of sent my mind reeling. Thinking about what Ahsoka will talk to with Din also sends my mind reeling <laughs> because she definitely knows Yoda. So for her, she, I mean, does she even know that Yoda is dead? Like the actual Yoda? Yeah, I bet she doesn't. Maybe she does. You know, what? Yeah, what does her does. journey with the Force look like? Because technically we didn't see her throughout the original trilogy. This is true. What does it look like? Has she been in contact with any of the Jedi from beyond? Has she been in contact with Anakin since he passed? You know, I I just... Oh my God, Caitlin, don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's possible though. (laughs) You know, but okay. But I think we have to come back to... Live action Ahsoka talking to live action Anakin would be like galaxy brain level insanity. Okay, I don't think that's going to happen in The Mandalorian. I, I don't think so either. I think it might happen in Kenobi, but I don't think, but like still, oh my God. Even the concept of that gives me goosebumps, gives me shivers, makes yeah. me so excited, taps into like my, my original fandom. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I think I think it's all, again, talking about expectations, right? These are all crazy speculation and... Yeah. You know, live action Ahsoka talking to live action Force Ghost Anakin is big brain. Yeah. And we're the people that were like, this isn't their last conversation when it comes to Anakin and Ahsoka. And, <laughs> and the then it was like, this isn't it. This isn't that big. This isn't very, very emotional. And like, it was it. That it was, was it. it. <laughs> I mean, that moment, whatever, that moment was still great. But I still hold on to it would have also been great to have Ahsoka talk to Anakin after he had already turned. But she yeah, didn't same. realize it yet. Same. Uh, anyway, I think that 
in keeping our expectations in check just a little bit is remembering that the show is the Mandalorian and mm-hmm. whatever Ahsoka does tell did has to service his character growth and his journey with baby Yoda. And yeah. I think that, I think that that could involve someone like Luke, depending on if he is, you know, starting to think about rebuilding a Jedi temple or searching for other Jedi. I think that, does fall in line with something that could be useful for Din or within the realm of possibility. Um, Can I bring in a little bit of a counterpoint? Sure. I mean, is it mean? (laughs) No, no. It's not mean. It's just something to consider. So to bring us back to this first episode of The Mandalorian, when we talked about where this season lands within the hero's journey and how this season is trials and tribulations and, uh, troubles right it's going to be a hard road is how i see it i i personally believe that's how john favreau are and dave filoni are writing this series as such and i think it's maybe interesting to bring up the fact that i can't remember i think it's this the city corvus right not the planet corvus or the planet corvus do you remember caitlin take the foundling to the city of kaladin on the forest planet of corvus yeah, I just like to bring up the fact that a Corvus is a type of raven, and ravens are symbolically ill will, bad omens, uh, bad badness, evil. Like we're talking oh, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So I I don't think that that's uh, just random. Okay, I just don't because yeah, no. I don't. When it comes to birds and it comes to Dave Filoni, it's not random, especially because I, I just I, I really feel this in my bones because Bo-Katan is designed after uh, Dave's wife, Anne, who was on the show a couple of months ago. And, she, you know, it, that's why she has night owls, because Anne's favorite bird are, are owls and owls are symbolically wise. And um, I think that they're, you know, mythologically related Wait, to. Oh my God, Charlotte, are we gonna see a convoy? Like, I don't know, Caitlin. That would be so cool. Okay, but sorry, I just feel on. like birds are a, a part of that, yeah, right? Yeah. That's I was gonna bring up the convoy, right? So then we have the convoy, uh, who is a symbolic nature of goodness and staying on the right path, and that's what Anne's uh, perception of it was. We asked her on the show, and I feel like it's a little bit significant and scary that they say this planet Corvus, which means Raven, which means ill will, which means bad omen. So what's going to happen on this planet when Din finally goes there? I don't think it's going to be this cheery reunion of who are you? And then it's Ahsoka, the same Ahsoka we always knew. I think it's going to be a different kind of Ahsoka. And maybe she's going to come with, I can't help you because I'm not a Jedi. And you know, it kind of goes to the whole Ryan Johnson thinking of like, what's the hardest thing you can hear at this moment? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. <laughs> and uh, now I'm worried. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think it is, you know, if we're looking like you broke down the symbology of birds, especially in relation to Ahsoka, the Amori, the convoy has been with her and is is the symbol of her resurrection. Mm-hmm. And has always been around and is, like you said, this omen. And sometimes yeah. I think that omen is hard to translate as good or bad. Because we see the convoy at the end of Clone Wars altogether. And it's a very ominous uh, shot with the convoy. 
But then, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're onto something though <laughs> with the fact that Corvus, before we had this bird of wisdom and um, what's the word like journey, uh, mm-hmm. something like that. And now we have this bird that is associated with death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah (laughs) and if you know if if ahsoka has been on this place on this planet for a long time are we getting a hermit situation like we saw with luke i think that's a really good thing to bring up about ryan johnson and his whole writing process with the uh last jedi of what's the hardest thing you can hear and if this is we don't know when ahsoka dies right but if this is like or if she or if she does die at all i don't want to worry people about that because i still I'm not convinced because of Dave Filoni's comment after the rise of Skywalker by hearing her voice in that moment doesn't necessarily mean that she's dead. I will say that before the Force Awakens came out, I had a theory that the original trilogy was already dead. And that was the whole plot of like they were the MacGuffin in the Force Awakens. But then you found out at the end of it that they had all already died like a long time ago. This is like 2013. (laughs) (laughs) but i mean what if she's not there i know or what you know i i think she will be there i'm just again i'm kind of just speculating but yeah i think it will be interesting about what's the hardest thing that the mandalorian could hear and that this person who is the closest link to the jedi that he actually has isn't there to help him maybe something has happened to her i I don't know, but... Only Dave knows. Actually, a lot of people know probably at this juncture. Yeah, at this this particular juncture in time, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But we do not know. What would be hard hard for Din to hear? Because... But then he's also... The thing is, too, the, like, flip side and, like, super exciting part of this is that in the hero's journey, he's also entering into the special world, Mm -hmm, too. Exactly. And Ahsoka is a big part of that, or could be a big part of that. And I was going to say this earlier, but I think that one thing I'm hoping to see more from in the back half of this season is Baby Yoda actually doing stuff. And He hasn't used the Force in a long time. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And so if he goes – they go to Corvus – if we're talking about dark omens, maybe that dark omen is not for Ahsoka, but for baby Yoda. And if Ahsoka is showing him the force, teaching him a little bit, or teaching Din how to teach him, I don't know. I think that could be really interesting. And mm-hmm. they see this darkness in him. We were talking about that last episode of kind of the potential that there is light and dark in baby Yoda and that we're seeing that in his kind of carelessness in some of his actions, even though, of course, he is a toddler, I think you guys understand what I'm saying here of that potential. And we see that expressed in some of his actions as a baby who needs to be taught and trained. And so I wonder what that could mean if, because this will be the first force user that he meets potentially. Mm-hmm. But then again, then again, we saw Ahsoka with holocrons all the freaking time in the Clone Wars. <laughs> Yep. And she had a holocron that had the names of the four sensitive children across the galaxy on it. That was a huge arc. Holocron Heist, season two, excellent episode of the Clone Wars. <laughs> the exact, the whole premise of that episode is a holocron, a database of all the four sensitive kids in the galaxy that Palpatine wanted to take and control. Baby Yoda, 95% chance that he was on that list. Yeah, maybe. So... 
there's a possibility too that Ahsoka knows a whole lot about the process of how these children were hidden initially mm-hmm. way back when. Because again, Baby Yoda is like Phantom Menace age. And that's Ahsoka's in that He's the timeline. same age as, as Anakin. Yeah, Ahsoka's in that timeline. That whole thing also opens up a whole can of worms about like who was the chosen one and like the virgins in the forest and everything like that. It's so interesting because they are the same age. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he would have been somewhere that the Jedi would have kept tabs on him, I think, Baby Yoda. And there's a possibility that Ahsoka knew about that and maybe knew specifically about Baby Yoda. I just think we're in for some surprises. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that it's going to be, a, as Jin said at the end of the episode, a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I I know we talked a ton about Bo-Katan and Ahsoka in this episode. I really do think all of this is super important for Din's journey of just understanding who he is, deciding who he wants to be in the future. And I'm really excited for the possibilities that were presented in this episode. I think that the pacing of this episode was so good too. It felt like such a long episode to me. I remember when I was watching it and I checked the time and I still had 15 minutes left and I thought that was crazy. <laughs> me too. I had the same experience. I yeah I think the the balance of the and and Bryce Dallas Howard did this really well too in Sanctuary but in this episode too it was it was really masterfully done as far as the pacing with these conversations at seated locations versus the conversations they're having in the middle of action it just it it was a really great episode it was so good I think that she understands the economy of scenes and how yeah. important it is to get you know each scene should have a thesis statement about what you're trying to do and I I could feel that in this you're right about the pacing yeah um it was a really good episode and I loved it and I'm sure there are things that we didn't talk about and this entire episode when we were recording it my head was spinning and I'm sure you can you can hear it (laughs) (laughs) so much what are they even talking about right now I'm not I'm not following 100% of the time of our podcast (laughs) (laughs) but Okay, well, is there anything else we want to say about Chapter 11, The Heiress? Not really. I know that people are going to wish that we talked about the music, and I thought the music was really great oh. in this episode. And I'm missing the weekly soundtrack releases of The Mandalorian, but I saw on Reddit that they're going to release it after the 12th episode, so one one volume, like, at halfway through, you uh, know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the music in this episode was really great. I my favorite part is when Bo-Katan and the Night Owl show up on the dock to save Din, and the music is only there for when they're shooting, and then it immediately drops off once yeah. once all the shots are fired and the last body falls. Right. I think that I saw some people mention. I'm not super good at picking up music and music cues, and to be honest, I don't really listen to the Mandalorian soundtrack that much, but. I, I feel like it, so much so to know the different tracks and everything, but I saw some people comment that this was the first time that they heard repeated themes or repeated, like directly lifted tracks that were used before in this episode. And I didn't necessarily notice that, but I think that's really interesting. Um, and it makes sense. I don't think it's a, <laughs> a cheap move by any by any point. I think it's an interesting use of maybe the leitmotif or something. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, Ludwig, Ludwig is just 
a genius. It out. Yeah, a genius. Knocking it out of the park week after week. Totally. It's so good. But Okay, well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode all about The Mandalorian, Chapter 11, The Heiress. I hope you guys enjoyed our rambles in this episode. It was a lot of fun. What do you, what do you guys think is going to happen next week? I, I really don't know. Um, we know that Dave Filoni is, is writing the fifth episode of the season, so I think that's when – as of right now, anyway, I kind of assume we'll see Ahsoka for the first time, but you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? So I'm really looking forward to next week, and I hope you guys are too, and that you are having a good week so far, whenever you're listening to this. And if you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Clarity, and mine is at Keelan Plusher. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, we would really appreciate it if you went and, you know, subscribed, left us a review, wrote a couple words if you want to. But it helps other people find our show and join in in the conversation. And um, it really it, it helps motivate us and encourage us, too, when we get new reviews on the show. So if you hadn't had a chance to do that and wanted to support us, that is a great way to. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers themed after baby yoda there <laughs> yes it's not just baby yoda it's many different versions of yoda yeah yeah yeah. including baby yoda yeah yeah he he is the the inspiration he's the blueprint he's the blueprint. <laughs> <laughs> i want to say a big thank you to these patrons nanami Catherine, Marvin, Ashley, Rad, Lindsay, Lola, Froppy, Kat, Dave, Nikki, Christina, and Brendan. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.